Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. And there is that real fear about, and particularly in, in the wake of the touring restrictions lifting after the pandemic, it's like how we used to go to gigs back in 2019. Everyone was starved of live music, and artists were starved of Ingham, and we thought, oh my God, it's got to be this golden age of live music. As soon as restrictions lift, everyone's got to be going out to gigs six nights a week, and bands are going to be touring, and everything's got to be fantastic. And the problem was that it wasn't. The idea that you can go out and then suddenly there's just this audience fizzing with anticipation. They're, they're not for a huge number of complex kind of socio-economic factors. That's the thing that lots of artists are just kind of waking up to. It's almost like they thought they would run into a room and there'd be 100,000 people cheering for them. And it's more than running into a room and 2,000 people are kind of politely clapping. That's kind of what's happening with live music at the moment. Welcome concert goers, music fanatics, and ticket scalping bots. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this episode of Yesterday's Concert, Journalist Iman Ford shares his insider knowledge of the 2023 live music forecast. Grab your earplugs and a few tissues for the horror of reality. I'm here with Iman Ford. We're going to be talking about the 2023 live music forecast. But before we get started, Iman, welcome to the show. Glad you're here. Well, I'm very glad that I'm alive to speak to you. I'm glad you're alive as well. <laughs> so before we get started, let's do some icebreakers just to have some fun, get to know each other, uh, loosen yeah. up a little bit. Uh, so first question, what was your first ticketed concert? My first ticketed concert, I can tell you exactly. Uh, I think it was 1987. I'll have to check the exact date, but it was Def Leppard on the Hysteria Tour uh -huh. when they played the King's Hall in Belfast. Uh, technically, though, because the support band was... Uh, partially remembered Canadian rock band Loverboy. So technically I saw them first, but I bought my ticket for Def Leppard. Wow. So they were the first band I ever saw live. And they were brilliant. But I my uh, abide memory is it said doors 7.30 on the ticket. So I thought they were on at 7.30. So I made my mother drop me off. My mother had to drive me 40 miles to uh, where, where the venue was and then go and visit relatives nearby. And so I was standing there in a very cold, empty King's Hall in Belfast for a couple of hours before people came on. And then Def Leppard played with a massive curtain around the stage. It was the same show that they took to America, the In the Round one, but they, they weren't playing In the Round. They had a huge kind of black curtain with the Hysteria artwork on the front. And then they came on and then they started to play uh, Stage Fright, fittingly enough. And I was going, like, this curtain's not coming down. Is that is this what gigs are? You don't get to see the band. They just play behind a curtain. And then the curtain drops. And then there was just this rush of light and the heat and noise as, uh, like, they kicked into the first chorus. And it probably remains the most thrilling thing I've ever seen live on stage, just simply because it's an old trick that people do, drop the curtain. But it was the first time I'd ever seen it, and it was my first gig, and it was amazing. Rather than rather than have a band kind of amble on the stage and go, oh, no, and tune up for five minutes, it was like straight out of the gates, and it was just very, very exciting. So I kind of judge lots of gigs uh, based on that. How Did you say how old you were when you went to this? I would have been... 
15 or 16, 16, oh, I guess. Perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. Man. I bet that yeah. did you go by yourself. I did. Yeah, I did. Wow. Can, good, good for you to go right out of the gate to your first concert by yourself. That's awesome, man. Yeah, no, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And many, many years later, I got to interview Joe Elliott. And then I, right at the end, I did a big kind of fanboy thing going, you were the first band I ever saw live and you were amazing. And he was going, yeah, we remember that show. He probably says that to everyone. Yeah, but, uh, I'm sure. He was, as everyone says, he is a lovely, lovely man. And he absolutely was. He put up with my A, terrible questions, and B, fawning over him and getting all excited about a gig from 35 years ago. That's incredible. Such a good story. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Uh, so second question, what's an upcoming tour that you're excited about? Oh, what have I bought tickets for? Do you know what? I think that the last things that I bought tickets for, and these will all be shows in the new year, are Dry Cleaning, who I absolutely yes. love. Very cool. Yeah, I've seen them a couple of times, and they're playing Brixton, which will be great. And Steve Mason, uh, who was in the Beta Band, has a new album coming out. And what else have I is coming up? Uh, an Irish band called Sprints, a kind of pop punk band, uh, have done a cu- couple of singles recently. And I think that's it. And so, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it gets a bit quiet kind of coming up to Christmas. And then kind of everything, everything's kind of really, I don't think I've got anything booked in. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's crazy because September I had like 20, 25 shows. And then December, January, I think I have like three collective shows. It just gets so quiet in that period. Yeah, there was there was a run two weeks ago that oh, I think I was going to do three gigs in a row, and then my girlfriend my girlfriend got ill uh, in the middle, and we had to miss one of them. But uh, yeah, I, I think we would have been dead if we'd done three in a row. We're too old. <laughs> so, question number three: Yeah, digital tickets or physical physical ticket stubs? If it's a band I absolutely adore, I like to hold on to the stubs, the ticket stubs. It'd be it'd be a handful of acts, maybe acts I've seen multiple times, and I've got a, a fat envelope with just loads of ticket stubs. But I am, um, I guess you have it in America. Dice? Do you have dice? The mobile ticket map? Uh no, I, we we have several different like Ticketmaster has its own thing, uh right stuff like well, that yeah yeah there's a there's a, a company they're, they're based in the UK but and they've expanded into Europe and I think they've got I think they do some ticketing for shows in New York as well called Dice and it's kind it's mobile ticket and they mostly do kind of uh, independent artists and they have a great thing where you can do a kind of fan to fan exchange through the app. If it's a sold out show and you can't sell your tickets and it just, there's no hidden booking fees or anything like that. So dice I use a lot just simply because it kind of covers the types of acts that I like to see. And it's just easy. It's just a really nice, easy experience. You kind of, you get your tickets and then, Oh, like two hours before showtime, you uh, you activate the QR code, and yeah, they have that. You can uh, transfer them to a friend if you can't make the show. You can put them back in for resale. They've got a great waiting list system. If the show's sold out, you can sit on that. So I've managed. You have to be very fast. You'll get a push notification, and then suddenly you can just click and get tickets for a show that you thought were sold out. So uh, I sound like a, I sound like I'm on the payroll of Dice, but I'm not. I just, <laughs> I just really like it. They've got, they've got a really simple philosophy of make ticketing easy and don't screw people with hidden prices because Ticketmaster are terrible for it. You see tickets advertised and it goes, 
it's 50 pounds. And you go, okay. And then by the time you get to the checkout, it's 60 pounds. And they have the audacity to charge you uh, to print your tickets at home. That's an incredible business model. We're going to charge you to use your own printer paper and ink and electricity to print a ticket that we don't bother printing for you. It's amazing. Save some of that fury because we're going to go (laughs) in on Ticketmaster here in a minute. So save some of that fury. Okay. So this is my last uh, icebreaker before we get into our conversation. And I'm going to. Force you into a tough you, spot. You, you, you could have called it a dice breaker as a bit of a, a branding uh, for you. Totally missed a spot. Let's rebrand. I'll go back. This is officially yeah, yeah. the dice breaker section. Uh, shout out to dice. Uh, so I only want a short answer. One of the two responses I give you, and then we'll we'll use it to ease into the conversation. Is the future of live music bleak or bright? It is unfortunately bleak for the next year or two, I think. That's kind of the, the the sense that I get from speaking to people in the industry. It's going to be a bumpy couple of years. And I'm talking more specifically from the perspective of the UK and Europe, where I've kind of got more, I would be speaking to more people who work in the industry there. So, Okay, so to start, I want to go over some recent news that came out. I think it was this week. Live Nation reported third quarter 2022 revenues were $6.2 billion, 67% greater than the same period in 2019. more concerts as well as 28% more attendees than the same period in 2019. What do you make of this? I guess I I haven't drilled into the numbers, but I'm wondering how much of that is revenue that was carried over from delayed concerts or postponed concerts due to the pandemic and different lockdown stages and so forth. And on one level, it's great. You say, okay, the overall business is, is growing, but you have to, I guess we have to factor in like how much of that revenue is tied into things like VIP packages and kind of premium ticket experiences and so forth. How much of that is coming from Ticketmaster Live Nation's kind of resale business as well, which is an, uh, a kind of artificial way to inflate the market. I don't think that that's not necessarily like for like. It's kind of secondary income. And also, kind of based on conversations I had, I, I I do some work for IQ magazine in the UK, which obviously is based around the concert industry. And I was doing a piece on uh, promoters in Europe and spoke to various people in countries like the Czech Republic and Belgium and France about kind of what was happening there. And they were all saying a very similar thing, that the absolute superstars are doing incredible business it's like Harry Styles. They can't sell tickets. Uh, they can't get tickets out to customers fast enough. I think one of the guys was talking about VIP packages for groups like uh, lots of K-pop acts, notably Blackpink, are doing kind of VIP ticketing where ticket prices are several hundred euros and things like that. So I think at the very, very top end, there is a huge amount of money to be made, but I think that naturally skews the market. Overall, the dominant players are doing better than ever. And then, but then if you extrapolate that across the industry, that doesn't mean that everyone is doing equally well. It just means that the people at the very top have managed to jack up their prices and sell more tickets. So I think. Numbers like that can be uh, kind of very misleading because they only tell you what what's happening at certain moments and at certain levels with the industry. I would rather see 
the data like that segmented. I would like them to see to break into grassroots sub two thousand capacity venues, indoor arenas, outdoor stadiums, festivals, and kind of segment by that because you can't take this homogenized view of what's happening in the live business by just looking at one company's kind of P&L. Yeah, it's obviously it's brilliant news for Ticketmaster Live Nation, but I think what you're seeing is a very squeezed middle and like a very, very, very hit and miss grassroots or smaller venues dynamic. Superstars, Springsteen, The Stones, Dylan, like these heritage acts that uh, genuinely don't need the money, but are sponging up most of the money from the live business as well, is an issue where if you if you look at those box star 10 biggest tours of the year, every year going back historically, these are all multi-millionaire artists who are maybe touring to pay off divorces or whatever, but that's it. It's like these these people are not the kind of hungry artists. These are kind of people who are frankly trading on past glories and charging a huge amount of money for people's to bothers showing up. So I think I think it gives a very kind of twisted understand of what's happening in the market I'd, I'd just i'd rather see much more segmented data on every level of the live business and there's a lot to unpack there and we'll get to a lot of that in a minute but one thing that i want to go through is that in that profit margin and everything i've read that a lot of that growth is through mergers and acquisitions. possibly uh, yeah. so in a general live nation is truly just devouring the market in a monopoly sense yeah so let's go to the to the profits words ice tea should i hate the player or should i hate the game <laughs> well, I think it's I, I, well. It's it's a process that's kind of happening across the industry as a whole. Major companies, and this applies to publishers, it uh, applies to record companies. Their default setting is consolidation. That's it. They see that as their birthright that we should be bigger, so we will just buy our way to be bigger. You see that as well with. Well, there's kind of lots of rumours kind of circulating at the moment. There's a, a really interesting um, uh, streaming service called Angami in the Middle East and North Africa. And there's rumours that Spotify is going to buy it or has been looking to buy it and things like that. So it's like rather than Spotify come in with a good kind of service offering for Arabic countries, it just, it just goes in and buys in the biggest, uh, looks to buy the biggest local player and things like that. And I think the, the live industry... Yeah, you've really got it's it's kind of AEG and Live Nation kind of dictate everything on on a global level. And I do remember someone I used to work with who used to run AIM, the Association of Independent Music, after Universal bought up the bulk of kind of EMI and then kind of threw the crumbs to Warner. It created this kind of real disparity in the market. We had Universal were giants, Sony were second, and then there's a massive drop to Warner between the three majors. And she said, there's only one thing worse. There's only one thing in the music industry that's worse than a monopoly, and that's a duopoly. And that applies in the record industry where you've got Sony and Universal control the lion's share of the market. And the same thing applies in the live industry where you've got Life Nation and AEG. And that's incredibly incredibly unhealthy to have two companies controlling so much of the market but their default setting is that we should control more and all i guess also 
an argument that runs through this is the the tough couple of years in 2020, 2021 with the, the pandemic and shutdown and so forth. Those companies would argue at the antitrust level about this is the only way we can survive. We have to consolidate to survive. That was that was the Sony BMG argument back in whatever it was, 2004 when they merged because record sales were down. And it was a similar argument that uh, Universal made when it was buying the drags of EMI after whatever it was, 2011, 2012. They avail of these unfortunate processes in the market. Tough times mean that the biggest players can go to antitrust regulators and say, we need to be bigger because if we're not bigger, the whole market will collapse. We are we are the center of gravity. And if you take out the center of gravity, everything spirals off into kind of space uh, and uh, zero gravity. I think things like that, I'm sure those are arguments that people at Live Nation would be having about we deserve to be bigger. And if we it's not that they're too big to fail, is they believe that they should be allowed to fail. And consolidation is just a it's a natural kind of dynamic with these companies those companies did not get big by accident those companies all got big through a series of mergers and acquisitions and takeovers and or ruthlessly driving competitors out of the market through through fair means or or not and it's just that it's in their dna it's like criticizing the sea for being wet it's like this is this is what these companies do this is their default setting and what i'm hearing from you is a very rational side of the argument whereas online which everything's polarized online but online it's ticketmaster sucks i hate ticketmaster they're the devil and that's usually coming from someone who's mad that a they got shut out for tickets the ticket prices were too expensive or like see the the tour is not coming to town or something like that yeah whereas what you're saying is like we really should be hating the game rather than the player because ticketmaster is just doing what a business is doing well yeah it's like uh, welcome to capitalism yeah. There's no hope for fans in that situation because, you know, unless you pin it back on the artist to take charge or the promoters to take charge, the fans are helpless in that scenario. Yeah. I think there's there's also another issue where, and this is where I start to have more sympathy for promoters and agents and touring artists and so forth, is that the economics of touring are incredibly high and it's, and it's, it's a high-risk business. And yeah, if you're Mick Jagger or you're Bob Dylan or whatever, you're you're generating good money from your tickets. But the the upfront cost of a tour of like building the stage and all the crew that you have on tour, you've got hundreds of people. You're basically taking a small town on tour with you. The costs are phenomenal. And if you're not selling out every night, your the losses rack up. It's some a promoter told me years and years ago, and it and, and it was a rough figure. But they said that they, the profit in every show is in the last 10% of the ticket sales because you've got the venue higher, you've got all of the associated costs. You're seeing things now with like the fuel costs are going up. The pandemic drove lots of infrastructure businesses out of the market. So like all the way from the, the, the truck hire to catering to lighting to sound engineers, lots of people lost their jobs or had to go and retrain. And there's an absolute dearth of staff for these to, to go on tour, to, to provide that infrastructure, because it's not just Mick Jagger and, and Keith Richards ambling on stage with their guitars and 
and microphones and singing and, and that's it. It's like it takes a huge amount of effort of people to get them on stage and to take them from city to city. And all of these people are professional. All of these people absolutely deserve to get paid. But then there's additional things like fuel cost is going up, equipment hire is going up. There is energy costs, huge, huge worry for venues that the uh, lots of smaller venues risk going uh, bankrupt because of the energy crisis at the moment where their heating and lights and running of their venue could, in some cases, is tripling, quadrupling, and they're kind of going to be driven out of business as well. So all of these associated costs, people don't look, people look at the $50 or whatever they put pay on a ticket and think that, Mick Jagger walks away with 48 of those dollars and he absolutely doesn't. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of mouths to be fed in the live business. And kind of, well, unsurprisingly, people on the internet uh, who are ill-informed shouting about things, well, uh, colour me shocked. But uh, <laughs> they, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of people who don't understand the precarious economics of this business. When you flip into profitability, it's you're you're in the land of milk and honey. It's incredible, but it's a huge, huge gamble to get there. The upfront costs for a big tour like the Rolling Stones, because they have to put on a they have to put on production, they have to do huge um day sentence, they have to do months and months of rehearsal. All of those people have to be paid who are working there as well. So already an act like that going on the road, there's several million dollars in the hole before they've even opened the doors on the first show of their of their world tour so and then you dial that back down onto the mid-level or small level artists it becomes more of a kind of lost leader as well for particularly for small artists they're living very hand-to-mouth mid-level artists maybe but they really need to sell out shows they can't have too many non-performing days in a week as well because then that costs them then you have that associated thing of mental health and the cost to performers ability to get on stage be that physically or mentally because it's two hours on stage might not seem like that much but it's a lot and doing that every night and you, you'll see lots of smaller artists that are doing shows where they maybe only have one day off a week or one day off a fortnight they're playing all the time and that's completely unsustainable and i think you almost have to look at it like fair trade products you go okay i want to i'll pay a bit more for my clothes because i know they're not being made in a sweatshop or i'll pay a bit more for my coffee because i know it's not some uh farmer in africa or south america who's being screwed by big monopolies or i'll pay more for meat at a butcher because i know it's organic and i want the the animals to be be treated well or whatever and there's a price to be paid for that and that's an ethical consideration and i think we also have to take an ethical approach to understanding what we need to pay for in live music as well, because you want people to make a living. You don't want people to have to squeeze in two extra shows that week and not have a day off just because they can't make the numbers add up. I, I think there's a whole kind of wider ethical debate that we as consumers have to go into as well, but it's very, very complicated because if you don't understand the intricate dynamics of the live business and the pressure that people are under and the stresses that they're under, 
like you wouldn't necessarily think you would just go well they're all millionaires that's a it's an easy assumption to make everyone's and there's there's a, there's a great lie that's been kind of kicked around that oh you don't make any money in streaming but you make it all in live and merchandise you absolutely don't some artists absolutely do but most artists if you look at their books for at the end of a tour they may be broke even they're, they're definitely many of them are not making minimum wage for going on tour by the end of it but it's like it's just they have to keep doing it effectively freelancers they make money if people show up very, very depressing and, and pessimistic. But uh, I think I think people need to understand just how, how tough and horrible it is. It's simultaneously the best and worst job in the world being a musician. It's the best because you're creating, you're engaging with fans, you're bringing happiness and joy to people, or you're getting people through the best and worst times of their lives. It's an incredibly emotional thing. But it's also just really hard because there's rejection at every turn. It's financially precarious, and that's the duality of being a musician. It's probably more that duality is probably more pronounced today than it's ever been. It almost feels like the entire industry needs therapy. Well, and that's you know you you talking all that like what is the incentive for rising talent and mid tier artists if they're coming out negative profits, no profits? What's the incentive for them to get out there when the internet has this? incredible organism that can help people promote your music i would be really interested to see what the capitulation point is for new artists today compared to years ago so how long does an act keep going and keep plugging away whether or not that's with a record deal or if they're self-releasing or if they're going through a distribution company like the orchard or awol or or any of these ones to the point where they just go, okay, this is just, we just can't keep doing this anymore. And I think that that fall off point might be greater today than it was 25, 30 years ago, where it's like maybe, and certainly in the UK, there were that like musicians were able to avail of government grants and unemployment benefit and things like that to. There were support schemes and things like that. And they were given a period of time to kind of get things going. And lots of record companies in the 80s launched during this time. And artists kind of had this extra support. And now they don't. It's really, really hard to get that level of support. The idea of, like, if you're an artist and you want to give up your career to be an artist, you can't kind of have a job and then suddenly you go, oh, I've got to take three weeks off because we're going to tour. We've got a support slot in and we've got to tour Europe for three weeks. You can't, you can't do that. So lots of people are working, lots of musicians are having to work zero-hour contracts or they're going to have to like have really, really short-term income. And that's really tough because like they're not getting anywhere. They're waiting for that moment, that that's, be that a record company or the show that flips it and then suddenly the momentum builds or the song that catches fire on on YouTube or Spotify or whatever. It's a tiny percentage that will get that. But I think maybe the realisation comes quicker to lots of artists that it's just not going to, they, they've got to change type. They've got to, they've got to leave. Like the simple fact that there's only three major record companies now, it means there's fewer doors for acts to knock on. Like 25 years ago, you had five. And now that's down to three. Obviously, you've got all of the independents and there's more independents. But still, there are fewer options now if you want to have 
a reasonably mainstream career. Well, and that's to add to this conversation. I want to quote you from your article. Uh, I'm going to read it. It's acts don't feel compelled to prostate themselves before the audience algorithm. If you are not actively touring, there is an underlying fear that A, you will be forgotten, B, some other act will steal your audience, or C, both. The, the cards are really stacked against bands here. Like, there's not a lot of hope in this. I mean, not that the industry was yeah. ever kind to to young acts. No, no, no. no. They, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. This was this was not this was not a charitable enterprise music industry ever. Yeah, but it's just I think it's increasingly tough. And there was that absolute fear. Yeah, you can be a huge, huge artist like an Adele, and you can disappear for seven years or. Or you could be Kate Bush and never really uh, tour once, and then don't do anything for thirty-five years, and then do a residency in London, and you can. And that's absolutely great, and and all kudos to Kate Bush for being able to do that. But but most artists have to kind of be out there plugging away, plugging away, plugging away, because yeah, you need a steady stream of new music coming. Because if you don't have people listening to your music, then you'll be down ranked on Spotify and YouTube and uh, everywhere else. And I think lots of artists think the same thing applies for live. If they're not out there playing, that people will forget them. But the problem is about that, it, well, it's that old line about familiarity breeds contempt. It's kind of more familiarity breeds apathy because you go, oh, that band that I quite like are playing again this year in the same venue that I saw them. And, after a point you're just going no I'll, I'll skip this one but if there's enough people who go oh I'll skip this one the next thing next time round they're having to play a smaller venue because the ticket sales were so poor and then that's it then, then it's the, the kind of death spiral for lots of artists and there is that real fear about and particularly in, in the wake of the touring restrictions lifting after the pandemic things are pretty much back to normal it's like mm -hmm. you can go to gigs very easily all venue sizes it's like how we used to go to gigs back in 2019 everyone was starved of live music and artists were starved of Ingham and we thought oh my god it's got to be this golden age of live music as soon as restrictions lift everyone's got to be going out to gigs six nights a week and bands are going to be touring and everything's going to be fantastic and the problem was that it wasn't because People were a bit hesitant to go to gigs. People were maybe a little wary of going to really big shows. People might not have had the money. Lots of people lost their jobs or had their income massively slashed as a result of the pandemic. The idea that you can go out and then suddenly there's just this audience fizzing with anticipation. They're, they're not because of for a huge number of complex kind of socioeconomic factors. And that's the that's the thing that lots of artists are just kind of waking up to. It's almost like they thought they would run into a room and there'd be a hundred thousand people cheering for them, and it's more they're running into a room and two thousand people are kind of politely clapping. That's kind of what's happening with live music at the moment. You know, you talking about this made me think about earlier this year. There's been so many nights here in Memphis specifically where there's so many bands playing. I'm having to pick, and like I can think of one night in May where it was like. The Who was in town, as well as the drive-by truckers. How many more t tours does The Who have? One, two, not many. I'm going to go see The Who because yeah. who knows if I'll ever get to see them again. Yeah. Never mind that the drive-by truckers are playing in a relatively small venue, and it would be a great intimate performance. 
But I mean, the problem is there's too much now. There's too many options. And I mean, like we're going to Los Angeles next week for some for some stuff. And I was looking at concerts in the area. There's literally like eight shows a night. I'm like, how am I? I'm literally picking shows based on like, I want to go to the Hollywood Bowl. So that's I'm going to go to that show purely because I want to yeah. see the Hollywood Bowl. There's too much happening right now. Is that something we're going to see next year? Well, there was a lot, particularly at, the, at that high level, I think there was lots and lots of people were booked into stadium shows. So, so that was a whole kind of artists who would normally have been touring that year clashing with artists that had to postpone the things. I think there was there, there was one weekend, I think, in London. So they had something happening at Hyde Park. They had something happening at Wembley Stadium and one of the other stadiums. And it was like these three massive shows in London, like 80,000 people capacity or whatever. And I think it may even have been the same weekend as Glastonbury, which is obviously like a couple of hundred miles away, but lots of obviously 200,000 people or whatever it is go to that. And that felt like people were going, oh, this is really exciting live music back. But it almost struck me as kind of breaking point. And I think what's happening is... And this is based on speaking to promoters in Europe uh, recently. They said what they're seeing is that a lot of the shows from this year into next year were shows that were delayed because of the pandemic. And also, a lot of fans are holding on to tickets. So shows are being rescheduled. They might be people who only go to three or four shows a year or something like that, which is the bulk of yeah. The, the bulk of people who will go to live music. And so they've already got tickets for shows that were delayed. So they're not buying for something else. So they're going, I've, I've already got my three shows for the year booked in. So I think kind of next year is going to be the recalibration year where suddenly all those delayed shows suddenly start to give way or start to be kind of phased out and and the new shows start to book, be booked in. And certainly that's, that's what some of the promoters I was speaking to we're saying they just went, yeah, we're just seeing this weird dynamic of kind of backlog of existing shows and delayed shows kind of crashing up against new booking shows. And they said it's going to take until next year for that to kind of sort itself out. And also, I guess we'll have a better idea of kind of the economic situation as well. And like, is this affordable for people? Can you justify going on tour and charging a huge amount of money? Maybe you're going to have to... Maybe we're going to have to see kind of pared back shows where they just go, we're going to have to really cut back on the production. And it's two spotlights and uh, and a, a confetti cannon and that's it, rather than a full pyro and giant structures and things like that. You talking about that, I wanted to mention. So there's an artist, uh, Maggie Rogers. She was going to come to Memphis in 2020 uh, and of course the show got canceled. But originally we had purchased tickets right in front of the, uh, the soundboard on the floor for $50 per ticket. Right. Uh, she just announced a U.S. tour for next year, playing similar size venues, $100 for the same seats now. Wow. You know, when you have larger tours like Bruce Springsteen, Blink-182 that are charging $400 for awful seats. Yeah. Is this the new pricing standard that we're looking at? I I read stories about what's happening in America in terms of concert pricing, and I'm horrified. That idea of ridiculous pricing doesn't really exist in the UK. I think, like, if I went, like, the biggest indoor venue we have in the UK is the O2, and it's like... 22,000, I guess, is a kind of Madison Square Garden yeah. size venue. If you were going to see someone there, 
on an average seat, most ticket prices are anything between, I guess, 50 and 70 pounds. What's that like? 70 and a hundred dollars. Wow. Like you will see wow. things like K-pop acts might charge mm-hmm. a lot more because they're very much in demand. But the, the that idea of it would be super VIP. If you were paying 400 pounds for a show in the UK, that would be some super VIP thing that might even include a meet and greet or you might be in a fancy box and have champagne and all of that sort of thing. That would not be just a generic standard ticket. But then, like everything, kind of what happens in America eventually kind of bleeds across into Europe. So that may be coming. But when Glastonbury increased its pricing for Glastonbury next year, because they said, well, we have to. And I think tickets are something like £360, which is what, just over $400, $450. But that's for a festival. That's for an entire week of music. And it's still a lot of money, and I completely get why lots of people cannot afford that. But buying per buck, that's pretty good. That's that's not the same as going to see something for two and a half hours in a, in a sports arena and paying the exact same price just to see Bruce Springsteen or the Rolling Stones or whoever. That feels like really bad economics for the, from the consumer's perspective. Well, and you saying that I went to Bonnaroo this year and I think I paid like three fifty, three seventy for my ticket. Between like three or four days, I saw probably close to somewhere between thirty and fifty artists, I would say. I mean, that's yeah. like you were saying, incredible bang for your buck. But for Bruce Springsteen in February when I go see him, I paid $165 to sit in the upper deck. Wow. The upper deck. Not even not even the lower. And that's and it's purely like a bucket list thing. Like I gotta see him because again, right. like the who, how many times is he gonna tour again? Blink-182, on the other hand, where they're charging exorbitant amounts, like, that's just capital robbery. I mean, plain and simple. Yeah, like, yeah. I think it's... It, I had this discussion the other week with my girlfriend. We, we did that hypothetical thing about what's the most money you would pay for a ticket to see your favorite artist who's still alive and touring in a small venue. So we picked a kind of a, a small venue. And so it could be any artist whatsoever. You're guaranteed a ticket, but you have to pay for it right now. And I think she capped out a couple of hundred pounds to see Tom Waits if he played. And I think I I think I went up to and I said, if it's in a small venue and it's like 150 people, I would pay a thousand pounds to see Paul McCartney, and that's it. And like, but that's a that's a really exceptional thing. And I think also I think we basically said we would be able to decide the set list as well. But like that's a. The that idea of kind of paying that sort of money for someone who you're kind of vaguely interested in, it's not a kind of live or die situation. It seems really, really weird. I think that obviously ticket show tickets sell out incredibly quickly for sh- for shows, but you could see Paul, if Paul McCartney played the O2 next week and he put tickets on sale, you'd probably be paying seventy pounds a ticket, which isn't isn't that bad. It's still, yeah, it, it's a lot of money, but then you go, well, it's Paul McCartney and you know you're going to get a good show. Exactly. Uh, it's going to be brilliant. But for some people, it's absolutely an affordability issue. They simply cannot afford that. As we kind of start to wrap up here, we've done a lot of doom and gloom about the future of live music. Just just <laughs> stick with me for all the happiness. Uh, what, 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 what is the positive uh, in this? It, it's a platitude to say it, but live music can be the most incredible thing you ever experienced in your life. There have been some astonishing shows like that, uh, even thinking back to them from even 20, 30 years ago or from two months ago 
are phenomenal. I've discovered incredible new music by seeing a support band early who I had no idea about. It's just a, it's a brilliant, brilliant thing. The, the idea that you can walk in a room and have your life, your life transformed in the space of two hours is phenomenal. It's like magic. But it's those little moments where something happens, whether or not it's someone hackles or they they play a bum note and they say, oh, let's play that again. And then it's, they, they, kind of, they kind of make fun of it or whatever. Uh, or there was an incredible moment again at the Albert Hall, swayed one of my favourite bands had reformed. And they were playing for the Teenage Cancer Trust. And there was one little bit where they just finished playing Metal Mickey. And then suddenly there was just this eruption in the audience and then the whole place just gave them this standard ovation for five minutes. It was halfway through the gig and it was almost like they thought this was going to be a one-off show. They were just doing it for a charity thing. And I think at that point, halfway through the show, the whole audience would just go, this is brilliant. Uh, they released it as a, as a DVD. I'm sure it's available on video. They always talk about that show, about kind of how shocked they were and they were like kind of genuinely dumbfounded that, that this kind of rush of love and that's what it is at its best. It's a rush of love in two directions, from the artist to the audience and from the audience to the artist. And that can create kind of really, really special moments. And I think it's it's a terrible cliche to say it, but like we're nothing without music. We're nothing without live music as well, because it kind of lifts the soul in a way that no other art form does, I think. Music is the greatest of all the art forms, and at its best, live music can be the greatest manifestation of music as an art form. It's almost like you walk out of the room and the mole- your molecules in your body have been rearranged slightly, and it, it, you feel you walk out a little bit taller and a little bit wiser, and and hopefully a little bit better. And music really has that has the power. It, it, this sounds like kind of greeting card philosophy, and I don't mean it to be <laughs> mockish and and sentimental but like music it's brilliant it's just it, it's it's magic it's a magic trick and i love it and i think the moment you go to a gig and you don't find something you don't get even like a 30 second high from one little bit of it is when you need to start going to gigs i don't know i think i think it's very very hard to lose that magic because it's kind of happening in a raw form in front of you every night, if you wonder. I cannot think of a better place to end our conversation on that. That was an optimistic, lovely sentiment towards live music. So that I think that's the perfect oh. cap to our conversation. Iman, thank you so much for this conversation. That was really Excellent. insightful. And I, I, I hope that we have a, a more optimistic outcome for 2023. I absolutely hope so. I, I have faith. I have faith. I think we're, it's, it, it's going to be a rough couple of years, but I think we'll get through it. We better get through it because, like, how am I going to fill my evenings? Thanks for listening to another episode of Yesterday's Concert. Thoughts? Similar experiences? Disagree? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. Or you can email us at info at yesterdaysconcert.com. If you're feeling kind, give us a review on Apple Podcast. Otherwise, until next time, give us a subscribe check out our website yesterdaysconcert.com and most importantly take care of your shoes